Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about being playful in the liturgy. Uh, I really thought this was a joke until Chris and Dennis started explaining this to me in a little more detail, and we even go into what's called a liturgical jacuzzi. So without further ado, episode 19 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You're so serious, Jesse. You need to lighten up, be more playful. Yeah. The playfulness so of the serious. liturgy? Yeah. Liturgy is like a big game. <laughs> it's just a game to you, isn't one, it? That's one thing I think. We need, we need uh, less seriousness about liturgy. That's what we need. That's right. Well, actually, we don't because in Guardini's book, the first chapter is playfulness of the liturgy, and the next one is the seriousness of the liturgy. It's actually oh. what it's called. Wait, those are the next two chapters? In Guardini's So we book. did the first chapter last time. Well. Well, last yeah. time we talked about Guardini. We did his first chapter. This, this would be chapter five and six, but... Um, and and this, this is one of the commonalities that Gardini's spirit of liturgy has with Cardinal Ratzinger's the spirit of the liturgy is that they both talk about the playfulness of the liturgy. And in fact, Cardinal Ratzinger begins his part one, which is the essence of the liturgy on its playfulness. Which doesn't mean goof around and do whatever you want at Mass. It's very much the opposite of that. It sounds kind of like what we do with this podcast, just playful liturgy. Well, actually, you know, in a way, that's true. What do we do? We start talking about things we love to talk about, important things, and then we just keep talking until it's over, and the time just goes by. This is what happens with play. When it's really play, it's free, and you get to just delight in something, and the time vanishes. This is one of the ideas of God being outside of time, in that he's perfect. Nothing changes in perfect delight, and so there's no time in heaven. You could say heaven is the most playful place not on earth, right? <laughs> playful, most playful place there is would be heaven. Yeah, I think so. See, there's a number of, uh, that Gardini will speak about and Ratzinger, and it wasn't just them. There was, uh, there was a fellow named Huizinga who wrote a book called Homo Ludens, you know, that it's the nature of man, to his ontology in this case is to, uh, to be playful. Uh, or um, Karl Rahner's uh, brother, Hugo Rahner, wrote a book those guys, those, those brothers, runners, yeah. the brothers' liturgy. Yeah, they uh, wrote a book called, or he wrote a book rather called "Man at Play." And so, this idea of uh, human nature and human being uh, being playful and its relationship to the liturgy has been around for quite a long time. Because there's what, what these authors and others see in uh, play are some of the things you see in the liturgy, and one is this kind of timelessness that uh, that both have. It takes you out of um, really out. Of, out of the mundane and out of the everyday, and you enter into a world of play that kind of has uh, it, it, its own reality. And it's, it's, I don't know if escape is the right word, but you enter into another dimension of life, both when you're playing a game or when you're uh, at the liturgy. So that's one of the, one of the things that relates. So how, how far do we get into this play full nature and what, what's the threshold that we need to the balance, rather. Well, the notion of play is not so much that there are no rules, because every game requires rules. You know, when you look at those uh, Sunday comics from Calvin and Hobbes, they play Calvin Ball, 
and there are no rules. And every time they do something, they say, no, they change the rule at first base, and then they go to third base, and then Calvin Ball, some other rule, and then they always end up in a brawl at the end. Like, that's what, and then they say, isn't this a great game? Because they like the play, and they also don't mind fighting. But liturgy requires a certain organizing principle, like any game. You know, if the infield fly rule were not universally accepted by everybody, the game would stop, and the umpires would come and argue, and then the game would be over. So there's always this play no pun intended, between play and wow. rules. But here's Maybe the, I'm going to get fired. Now you're doing all the puns. Well, here's the <laughs> theological significance is that um, play means that we become, we get to do that which, according to our divine destiny, we long to do and want to do. And that is to rejoice and relax in the things of heaven in the fullness of our own restoration. And that's the kind of play that we're talking about here. Yeah, uh, along those same lines. I mean, think about when kids play or when you were a kid, when you would play. What is it that kids play when they're younger? Hide and seek. Oh, uh, that's one thing. House. Yeah. But even there. I, I, Pretend. They're, they're about, back to the rules. When the kids play hide and seek, right, there's boundaries, right? No, no, you can't hide over there because that's not outside of the boundaries. So mm-hmm. even in a play or in games, there, there's certain rules. But the other thing, like Dennis said, most of the time, like when I see my kids, they're playing, not kids, but... Adults. Adults, oh, right? yeah, like playing house. Yeah, and, whether it's house or, uh, you know, Star Wars or Army or whatever it is, they're always playing uh, when they're older. And Dennis was mentioning this before, is there's this sort of anticipatory character about the liturgy, too. So it's not like when we come to the liturgy, we play we're grown-ups, but we, we anticipate a future that, uh, that lies before us. So just like kids play adults, when we come to the liturgy, we're anticipating a reality that's wait, yet wait, to come. Wait, did you think of this metaphor, or was this wrong? Which? This kids playing. Well, no, I mean... The, all of these authors, Rahner and Ratzinger and Gardini okay, so and all of them. Oh, sure. Uh, that's why so that's it was such a, a I think popular analogy. I think it's a really good analogy, too. Oh, well, it's... And part of that true. is the reason why you participate in the rite of the liturgy itself. I mean, if all you see is go to Mass on Sunday because you have a duty to religion, you owe God thanks for creating you, well, that's fine, but that's not really that much. What you want to do is learn how to live in God's divine life. So, you know, Gordini speaks about the liturgy creating a universe brimming with supernatural life. So you go into a room where you see angels and saints and gold and uh, paint and color, and people are singing beautiful music, and it smells like incense, and it looks like shimmering jewels. That's like walking in a virtual reality in the liturgical sense, except it's actually tangible. So it's taking all that heavenly stuff, bringing it into our own time, saying, you get to do this, just like the kids would play house. Someday, maybe I'll you know, be grown up and have a kid. Well, this is playing heaven in the sense, except that it's not just a diversion. It's actually making real by doing, making in real in you what you're doing. Kind of sounds like... Uh Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, they go and you have this, all this wonderment and awe and things you've never seen before and just like this amazingness. And it also kind of reminds me of, uh, I think we talked about this before on the podcast, but the joy of the gospel. So if you are who you are designed to be, you'll be joyful. You'll, um, you'll as Catherine Siena says, you'll set the world on fire. And so these are things that, um, you know, we're not doing them for repetition or for our own personal growth, but we're doing them because they just inherently bring us joy and happiness. It, it wouldn't be so without that. Pope Francis, uh, as far as I can tell, says very little about the liturgy, but his most famous line to this point comes in the joy of the gospel. And he says, evangelization becomes joy in the liturgy. Yeah, so the liturgy has this uh, playful, joyful uh, dimension about it. 
But again, it's not a, an excuse for goofing off, right? The rules are what they are. The liturgy has to maintain its own inherent uh, dignity. The, the discussion of playfulness was particularly relevant in the early 20th century, and I think it still is now, but particularly then because they saw people having a legalistic view of the liturgy. You do this and you do that and you come when you're supposed to and you avoid mortal sin, and that's enough, right? So it's very purposeful. We'll just sit there and do as little as we need to until we get the Eucharist at the end, which one of our former professors, uh, David Fagerberg, used to say was the golden dew drop from heaven. It was like this funny little nutrient pack in a little white host. And to a certain degree it is, except that you're supposed to delight in the music and the marble of the of the walls and the hand of your neighbor and the sight of silk and gold and stained glass. That this delighting in all of this is actually part of the becoming heavenly. And it's not just sitting there doing nothing with the liturgical minimalism until you receive communion and to go home. I used to try and count how many people were bald or had glasses and I'd make a prediction and then do that. So that's not what you're talking about. <laughs> no. uh, I don't know if my brother listens to this podcast or not. I'm going to make a confession for him and us. What we used to do was we'd be serving. We had the patents and we'd try to reflect the light off the patent. Oh, I've definitely the, done that before. So, yeah, that's not the type of playfulness in the got liturgy it, that we're talking it. about. Right. Or you <laughs> shake someone's hair and you squeeze as hard as you can. <laughs> You know, you brought up Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, all those kids were told, delight in this, delight in that, but don't do this, don't do that. And what did they do? You know, Augustus Gloop drank the chocolate river and he got sucked into the pipe and Violet Beauregard ate the gum she wasn't supposed to eat and turned into a blueberry. And So you play the game by the rules and you can delight in those, but if you step outside the rules, then you're not playing that game anymore and you usually wind up messing things up. Yeah, again, watch, your, watch kids play a game, and they are so uh, intent on, especially the other person, following the rules, you know, like, no, no, that stick is not, you know, a sword, that's just a stick, and you can't go over there, and you can't climb in that tree. No, home base is here. You can't just be on the porch. You have to be on the front steps of the porch. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a real interest in the rules, and, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, at least in his chapter on the spirit of the liturgy, will make uh, mention of that, that uh, play can, can devolve from being joyful and playful into being just another human activity that uh, that must follow the rules. And so how does the church give us examples of that? Like, how does the church, uh, either the building or the liturgy itself, um, how is it designed to uh, relay that message? About playfulness? Yes. Well, you know, if, if the liturgy is playful like games are playful, it means that it takes you to another world, um, that a lot... Here, here's another... Uh, commonality that these uh, these thinkers would make is that uh, both play is something and games are something that really serve no purpose. I mean, you can say that, you know, to play a football game or something, it gives you the purpose of learning how to, of teamwork or of exercise or some such. But, you know, most of the activities that we do throughout the day all have some definitive end, you know, like they're all for the sake of a paycheck, which are for paying the mortgage, which is so that you can have a place to live, which is so that you can go to work, so that you can have a pay. You know, the, so many of our activities are for a particular practical end. But games and play, you step out of that world and you do something that's just joyful unto itself. And that's the type of thing that the liturgy is as well. So uh, the liturgy, like games, takes us out of this world. It's a, uh, in a certain sense, it's a purposeless activity. Its end is itself. You don't go to the liturgy necessarily to, you know, for some other end besides just worshiping God. He's an end in, in himself. Um, it anticipates heaven. 
Okay, just like games do, they have this anticipatory character. All right, and so how does the liturgy do that? Well, it, it, in its architecture, for example, it gives you a place that's out of the ordinary, that in a sense you're stepping into another realm. And the church building is not a utilitarian, I mean, it has to have some utility in it, but it, it's, it's kind of, a, its purpose in the end is ultimately uh, God's glory. Right, and Guardini says art is the way that we play. And art has certain rules. I think the phrase he says in um, liturgy, all is picture, melody, and song. So what do you see? Well, you see your own heavenly future when the heaven and earth are united again. What do you hear? Not just plain old um, words spoken, but words spoken with melody and rhythm and harmony. And so it's always controlled and ruled and orderly and formal and rhythmic and clothed in color and garments. It's very much like a flower. Um, Aguardini actually compares he speaks about flowers being kind of purposeless. I mean, you could just have some way to, you know, pollinate uh, part of a flower and get the seeds, but they have these elaborate colors and patterns and petals that are delightful uh, to look at. And so nonetheless, there's still a controlled pattern to it. Flowers don't just do whatever they want. They grow in a particular pattern and color that is um, established by God and then is delightful at the same time. And, and I think I've heard you mention this before, uh, either on, on the podcast or just in our uh, lunch conversations about how when uh, flowers or you know similar things are depicted in churches, they're always perfect, like a, exactly perfect and measured and perfectly symmetrical, which you might not exactly see in nature. So even nature itself is perfected in this heavenly liturgy. Right. In this kind of play, you show the fallen world as if it's no longer fallen. So when you go into a Gothic church, you may see all these little patterns of flowers and grapevines, and they don't really look like a grapevine in Napa Valley where they're growing grapes for wine. It'll have geometric patterns. They'll fit into squares or triangles. Because right, those are fallen grapes. They are fallen grapes. Even at their best, the best grape here is still a fallen grape. So we haven't even tasted the best wine yet, is what you're saying. Absolutely not. Well, we've had it sacramentally in the wow. precious blood. but For taste. Yeah. For I taste. just got a little more excited for heaven, gentlemen. <laughs> well, that's the idea. <laughs> Purpose, people, purpose-driven people, Guardini says, they, they subordinate sort of the delightful things to some purpose, some end, and they um, just, it's like, I don't care about all that pretty stuff, just give me my Eucharist so I can get out of here, right? That would be the, like the, the caricature of a purpose-driven person, as opposed to someone who wants to delight in the process. You know, let me, let me hold my child in my arms so that he doesn't become, you know, a psychopath someday from being denied, you know, human contact. Well, that's a purpose. Let me hold my child in my arm because it's delightful to love my child. That's a different kind of thing. You know, there's a, another famous writing from Gardini that he wrote in 1964. And he, so the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy of the Second Vatican Council was 1963. All right. So one of the dioceses in Germany was having a liturgical conference and they invited Gardini to come. And he couldn't come, so he sent this letter instead. So this is just within the year after the Constitution on the liturgy. And basically, the, the gist of the letter is, can the modern man even participate in the liturgical act? Okay, and so This like, is borderline Jansenism? What is it? Jansenism? Uh, very possibly. If nothing else, he's kind of accused of being just a, a grumpy old guy at this right. point. Because, yeah. you know, just not even a year before the Constitution on the Liturgy was released, and now this great figure of the liturgical movement is asking the question, can the modern man even do this anyway? Uh, it, That's like a hipster thing. You it, wouldn't even experience it. You wouldn't know. <laughs> he was the hipster of his time. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, because he's saying, you know, the modern person, and for us, postmodern people, 
you know, we have this way of looking at things that is contrary to the liturgy. If the liturgy is like a work of art or work of beauty or like a, a piece of poetry, if it's something that's done without a utilitarian end, I mean, the modern or postmodern person is not used to looking at things like that. Our formation uh, in this day and age is very analytical and rational and scientific versus one that's more contemplative. And to be able to look at the liturgy and participate in the liturgy and appreciate the playfulness of the liturgy, you can't look at it like a scientist. You know, there's that saying that uh, you can learn a lot by dissecting a frog. But of course, the frog dies in the process. Mm -hmm. Well, you can learn a lot by trying to dissect you know, the liturgy and all of its parts, but you're not appreciating it for what it is. And so um, part of liturgical participation and liturgical understanding is being able to appreciate the, uh, the art, which is the liturgy. And, you know, the, again, the rules are necessary and the playfulness is necessary, too. It's not an either or. Uh, Gordini says that without the guidance of the rules, um, it just degenerates into a pure personal preference, asceticism. I like this. You like that. We'll do whatever we want. And we see that happening, you know, from parish to parish uh, these days. But without the playfulness, it becomes a kind of cold, rigid, frigid, droopy, boring, dull thing. Oh, go to church because I get my you know thing. To, I'll just trudge through it, as opposed to I love. I take my visitors from out of town into this church because it's so beautiful, and we go there where we're not even praying because it's so nice to look at. You know, there's something about that delightful architecture that brings people there, rather than dealing with the, the drudgery that they have to do or else. It's probably somewhat similar to the difference. Uh, in the way that maybe I see numbers as opposed to somebody who's a, a math professor who sees formulas and how they become other things. And to me, you know, you know, numbers are just kind of this, you know, standard thing, and they can be pretty boring from the from the surface. But I'm sure there's real beauty in the way that formulas are created, and certain things affect other things. Yeah. Well, in the end, I mean, think about the, the terms that the church uses to describe the liturgy now. Uh, is in terms of art, you know, and like uh, I am definitely not a tech guy, which you are, Jesse. I okay. Mean, you know, it, 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 information is a series of zeros and ones. Yeah, binary and, code. Yeah. Okay, so you can look at, say you're listening to, a, a, you know, a box sonata or something like that. You can look at it as a techie, as a series of zeros and ones, or you can listen to it as an appreciator of a beautiful piece of music. Same thing with the liturgy. When you come to it, you can try to understand it and appreciate it and gaze upon it as a beautiful work of art or as a liturgiologist who's trying to dissect and uh, you know, kind of the science of uh, the liturgy. But then, then you, miss, uh, mm -hmm. you miss what's there. And ours or art or skill or, or technique is, is the term most often used by the church today to describe her her liturgy. So she uses this term ars celebrandi. It's, there's an art of celebrating. There was a recent document called the homiletic directory that was issued under the papacy of Pope Francis, where they speak of ars predicandi, the art of preaching. There's the art of mystagogical catechesis that John Paul II talked about. The catechism calls the Holy Spirit the artisan of God's masterpieces, the sacraments of the new I'm law. I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> it is. I mean, uh, if you want to look at it in its spirit and proper ontology, you have, to, you have to appreciate it as the work of art, which it is. Precisely because this is the nature of God. It, um, Gordini says it's the delight of the Father that the Son should pour out God's essence to the world. It's his delight to do that. It's not... I mean, of course, he sort of rescues us that way and saves us that way. But it's not just, oh, here's this little surgical strike I'm going to make. No, I'm going to give my whole son and all the power of the son to the church, and the people are going to live with it, you know, and delight in it. 
And there's kind of two ways to learn about God. You know, one is to sit with a book and have a, you know, kind of strict lesson and learn all these words and well, this is what God is, this is what God is. Sort of like learning, I use this example a lot, like learning what a jacuzzi is. You know, sit in a room and read a book. Oh, there's hot water and there's bubbles and jets. You can only know so much that way. You sit in a jacuzzi, you don't need to read about how many bubbles and jets there are. You're just like, I know what a jacuzzi is now. Mm-hmm. So if the liturgy presents the world as it's going to be and as we want to be, and we get to delight in our own freedom from the fall and our own glorification, that's the spiritual jacuzzi. And you can read oh about it. Gosh, you can read about jacuzzi. it if you want. <laughs> you can tell the book, Dennis. Spiritual that's going to be our band name. Band name, that's Spiritual right. jacuzzi. Uh, Christian band, of course. Um, but there's no purpose to the, sitting in a jacuzzi other than delighting in it, even though there's an end to making a jacuzzi. So the purpose I mean, it, It's a waste is, of time. Yeah, it, it is. is a waste of time. And the liturgy is a waste of time. I mean, it's not designed for any of these utilitarian ends, just like sitting in a jacuzzi isn't. Because to do the liturgy, like sitting in a jacuzzi, is is its own reward. But at the same time, it makes you holy. So it's it's a really great thing. God could have said to Adam and Eve and therefore the rest of us, you know, you blew it. You ate the apple. You said, no, go sit in the corner forever, and I'll, you're done. But instead, he said, I'm going to bring you back and teach you about myself by allowing you to experience myself, delight in me in all these different ways. And the liturgy is the primary example where that happens. And where else in your life do you see all the arts combined? Do you have a choir singing live music? Maybe you have that at a concert hall, but you're not going to have that with someone in silk vestments and stained glass and the smell of incense and fresh flowers and poetry. All the beautiful things in the world come together and they say, this is how you are supposed to be forever. And this is how you learn what this is like. This is the spiritual jacuzzi. Just sit there and take it all in and learn more eventually as time goes by. But learning it alone out of a book is not the same as experiencing it and being transformed by it. Especially if that jacuzzi is uh, filled with holy water. I mean, I think that's just, that would just be amazing. We'll do a podcast on the baptismal font another time. But, uh. <laughs> well, I guess if the if the if the jacuzzi is hot enough, it'd be holy water because it just you boil the hell out of it, you know. But oh, um, <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting. We were doing so well too. In some of the Eastern traditions, some of the early church traditions, they would speak about the um, the cross going in the water uh, at. Uh, so it's a Good Friday when they, they plunge the cross. The Easter Vigil. Easter Vigil, yeah. And that, that the water would boil. That was like the language of the water would boil because it couldn't stand to be just water anymore when the grace of Christ came into the world. Wow. So there's a liturgical jacuzzi there. It's the Easter Vigil. Wow. Yeah. Man, this happens so often. I just make some offhand joke, and then somehow there's some liturgical This is your playfulness. It. it is. And understanding of the Absolutely. liturgy. Right. Well, uh, gentlemen... I think it's about time to answer another liturgy question. Let's answer it in a playful let's get way. Seri- no, let's get serious. It's playful. Oh, no. Serious? All right. A seri- let's find a serious Playfully, question. Seriously playful. <laughs> All right. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. I'm Dr. Scott Hanna. I'd like to recommend the Liturgical Institute. I have the privilege of teaching here at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. Every Monday I come out to teach the seminarians and right alongside of Mundelein Seminary is the Liturgical Institute. Founded back in 2000, professors like Dennis McNamara have been teaching liturgical studies for MA students, for those seeking a licentiate or even a doctorate. 
and you dive into the scriptures, but not just in study, but praying together, morning and evening prayer as a community of students. At the same time, you're going into all of the liturgical documents of the church, discovering the sacred riches of the living tradition and really connecting scripture and the liturgy. I'd urge you to consider coming here to study, especially if you want like a master's degree to work for the church and at the same time, share the riches of the beauty of the mass. Thank you. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we have another question. This week, uh, we have a question from Carol. And Carol says, hi, liturgy guys. There's an exclamation point, so she really wanted to emphasize that she's saying hi. Hi, Carol. Uh, Oh, great. They both say hi. Well, Chris doesn't say hi. He doesn't really like you, Carol. Sorry. Um, Carol says... I am still catching up on the latest of your podcasts and recently listened to week 11, where one of you mentioned that having gluten-free hosts was not a thing that the church could allow because it's not what Jesus did, or something like that. Yet I have been to parishes, my own included, that offered that option. Is it wrong, or should something be said? Thanks. Hi, Carol. Oh, okay. It's a great great question, but it's very confusing. Um, Yeah, what what is true is that... uh, to be valid matter, which means uh, uh, without which nothing happens. So to be valid matter, there has to be at least a very small amount of gluten in uh, the host. Uh, gluten from which, or rather host from which all gluten has been removed are invalid matter for the celebration of the Mass. And the thinking is, is that, uh, that gluten is a constituent part of the ontology of bread. Of That's wheat for you in particular. Yeah, of wheat. wheat. Yeah, and once it's all been removed, it, it starts to be a different substance, but it ceases to be bread, and so it will not transubstantiate. So one. Uh, so the option is. Well, we should say this. Oftentimes, I think it's just a matter of terminology getting confused. That we say uh, no gluten when we mean low gluten or some such. So that could be the option. But if a, if a parish is using no gluten hosts. They're using invalid matter, and there's no transubstantiation, and consequently, there's no body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So it's a very serious thing that we don't use invalid uh, matter for the celebration of the sacraments. But there are low-gluten hosts that are so low in gluten that many uh, people with celiac disease can, in fact, ingest them without having symptoms. Now, there might be people who are so sensitive that even that can't happen. But for the most part, low-gluten is workable for most people. Yeah, another option would be to receive from the chalice. But if someone is uh, very sensitive to gluten, um, it's... uh, the fact is that even someone who's received uh, a host and then receives oh, from wow, a chalice that their that. gluten can be in the in the precious blood at that point. So if um, what you don't want gluten backwash, <laughs> let's call it what it is. And nobody does. <laughs> what the person what should happen is uh, go right to the pastor. It, it's it's the church's job. It's the pastor's job to, to in his pastoral care for the people to see that they can receive the sacraments. Uh, uh, as often as possible, which is the mind of Christ, the mind of the church, and so that a, a proper solution could be made then. Well, I think that's a good answer. And, and also, uh, just to reiterate that, I think sometimes people use low gluten and gluten-free um, interchangeably. And so while I do think uh, lo- gluten-free hosts probably exist, um, that's probably the first thing to check. So, 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Carol, for your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.